Blog Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Inclusive Class Podcast. Through interviews and discussions, it's our goal to explore the promise and practice of inclusive education. I'm Nicole Erdicks, and I'm one of your hosts for the show. I'm a parent, inclusion teacher, and creator of the online resource, theinclusiveclass.com. And here with me this morning on the Inclusive Class is my co-host, Terry Morrow. Good morning, Terry. Good morning, Nicole, and welcome to all our listeners. I am Terry Morrow. I'm the author of 50 Ways to Support Your Child's Special Education, and I write about special needs for about.com at specialchildren.about.com. I'd like to mention to anybody out there listening to us live that we're not taking phone calls, but the chat room will be open. If you'd like to stop in and suggest a question, I'll try to work it in if we have time. If you'd like to stop in and just say hi, that would be nice, too. I sit here looking at the empty box all through our show. People <laughs> log in and then quickly log out when they see there's something going on. They do. I know. It's very, Even if you ask the question. Before I even get a chance to say hello, they're gone. It's lonely so, at the top, um, isn't it, Terry? <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's lonely sitting here in front of the chat room. Um, but uh, I'm looking forward to a, a day here. We have no classes today, but we have mystery homework, which is I know there's homework, oh. and I have to get from my son exactly what it is, and I'm not sure even oh. he's sure what it is, so we'll be playing a involved game of of nag and answer throughout the day mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. he also has to answer a question for a uh online class that even i don't know what the answer is so it's going to be fun it's going to be oh. like you know you know hitting at things with a baseball bat and mostly missing stuff so um Great. um oh um, boy can we make this show go for like an hour and a half it <laughs> 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 sounds like you got a full day ahead of you oh yay <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, you know, at least um at least you know you've got uh the day off to do that. So that's kind of nice. Yeah, you know, <laughs> not what? the way you wanted to, to <laughs> the do days your on day are off. easier than the than the homework days off. So I can imagine. Um, how, I can how, imagine. how are school things going with your kids? Pretty good. Yep. Same as good. uh last week. Although yeah. English is getting a little bit frustrating, and I'm kind of bordering on, do I switch? This is my daughter. She's in a grade yeah. seven English class, and it's like, do I switch her out of that class, or do I keep her in? Do I, you know, stand my ground and say, my daughter has a different learning style, and she has, yeah. you know, these <laughs> needs that are not being met in the classroom, or do I say to my daughter, okay, come on, you know, you've got to adjust yeah. to the teacher's teaching, and uh, anyway, she's just getting extremely frustrated. It's a very um, direct style of teaching um, yeah. with paper and pencil, and it's just not working for her. So I'm kind of so that. hard to know what to do. It is. It totally is. Yeah. And of course, if she changes classes, then she's anxious about that because of you know what. Sometimes you know the, the devil that you know is better than what yes. you don't. Well, so. yeah, sure. Yeah, so we're kind of in the yeah. middle of that, and um, everything else is trucking along, so nothing yeah. else to report. <laughs> yeah, well, so, that's good. That's good. But yeah. that is a hard situation to be in, and and I've had a few times during the years of, of wondering about that decision, too. And uh, Yeah, it really is, because you know. I, I really would like to advocate for her and 
Yes. I know how frustrating it is for her, but how do you kind of, you know, I mean, even somebody, we talk about it all the time about ways to approach teachers and why it's important to meet kids' needs and that when it comes down to it and having to actually go up to up to bat, you're not really sure how yeah. to approach it sometimes. And so then anyway, when we want them to self-advocate, but we're not necessarily sure what they choose to self-advocate for is the best thing for them. <laughs> you, yeah. You know, yeah. You step precisely. back and say that's so, you know, the easier, perceived easier path, go ahead if that's what you feel is right, or do you say, hey, look, you can do this other thing. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that's our little thing. dilemma. Maybe we'll have it resolved by next week, and I'll let you know. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, um, we are uh, fortunate to have a returning guest with us this morning. Uh, We have Dr. Kristen Cosmer with us, and she is here. She was with us back in June 2012, if I remember correctly. And she is here again to talk about making positive plans uh, about behavior through IEPs and behavior plans to keep those kids with the uh, challenging behavior in the classroom and out Mm -hmm. of the principal's office because, or the hallway, because uh, sometimes, well, sadly, or home, yes, sadly, you know, teachers obviously have their hands full, but, um, Mm -hmm. you know, unfortunately don't have the tools to... um, to use when they're working with challenging children. So anyway, we've got Dr. Cosmo here on the line with us. Good morning, and welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. We're happy to have you back. And before we get started, can you please tell our listeners about your background and the work that you do? Sure. Um, Currently, I am a special ed supervisor for a public school in Pennsylvania. In addition, I'm also a PBAD, a board-certified behavior analyst, doctorate level, and a PA licensed behavior specialist. Pennsylvania just started licensing behavior specialists this year. So um, that certification is pretty new. And Mm -hmm. my background has been working with um, autistic children in multiple different settings and all students with behavioral disorders in public schools. And my dissertation was on... Uh, elementary teachers and their beliefs on including uh, autistic students. Right, right. And I remember I think that was one of the topics that we talked about the last time you were on was uh, children with autism because obviously that's a large chunk of the work that you do and the experience that you have. But a lot of these behavior plans that we talk about and ways to work with children with autism also work with students in other settings too. So I think you know, there are many ways that we can transfer those skills and knowledge between kids when we're working with them. Now, um, when we talk about behavior plans and, uh, you know, ways to support a child with behavior challenges in the classroom, and then we talk about IEPs, which are individual education plans, uh, how are the two related or different and how do they work together, or do they work together? How is all that linked? They should definitely work together. Um, behavior plans should be positive and based on the student's needs. Unfortunately, sometimes when developing functional behavior assessments and positive behavior support plans, 
it's not always a, the nicest conversation to have because it's really talking about some um, most often severe maladaptive behaviors. Um, but putting in the right antecedent strategies and positive strategies to prevent the behavior and including that in the behavior plan, which is part of the IEP, really helps students and teachers alike. So what what you would recommend then is to, before the IEP, uh, have a look at the child's behavior and create a behavior plan and then have that put into the IEP. Correct. Um, behavior plans, positive behavior support plans, must be based on a functional behavior assessment. Um, mm -hmm. The way I normally explain this is you don't just go to a doctor and say, hey, fix me. You tell the doctor your symptoms and what's wrong and after an exam combined with your background, they diagnose you. Um, yeah. uh, an SBA really looks at the function of behavior, the why the behavior is happening, and mm -hmm. if you don't know that, you can't effectively develop a behavior plan to prevent the behavior from happening. Because you could actually inadvertently reinforce a behavior if you don't have a hypothesis about the function of the behavior. Right, which is so true because if you don't know where it's coming from, then you can make the situation worse. So especially Absolutely. children with sensory issues or um, things going on at home and they bring to school with them. So investigating clearly is a, is, is a start. Now, can these behavior plans um, that you're talking about, which we'll get into more detail in a minute, can they be implemented in a general education classroom, or do they just happen in a self-contained classroom? Like, how, where should the behavior, what areas of the school should the behavior plan cover? Well, it covers the entire school day. Uh, every teacher who interacts with that student should have a copy of the behavior plan and the specifically designed instruction that goes along with it, uh, or the SDI. Um, every teacher should be aware of the behavior plan, what it means, and ask probably the special education teacher, the case manager, if there's any questions. Mm -hmm. It's very important to know what to do in the case of a behavior as well as how to prevent the behavior. Um, mm -hmm. So when the IEP team meets, uh, they look at the least restrictive environment, keeping the, the child in the general education classroom and curriculum as much as possible, and, and that's required by law. Mm -hmm. And once the IEP team determines the placement, where the uh, instruction should take place for each individual child, that behavior plan can be implemented throughout the child's day, including the general education classroom. Right, and including uh, the bus driver and the lunch lady. Right. And I know Terry and I talk about this quite a bit. It's just when you're implementing a plan for a child or even an IEP, there are so many other support staff around the school that need to know how to work with your child because you can yeah. have, you know, this plan happening in the classroom, but as soon as they get out of the classroom door and onto the school field, you know, they're they're interacting and or being treated in a completely different way, which, mm -hmm. you know, then it has a snowball effect. So, Absolutely. yeah, I would, yeah, I would stress letting, uh, the, making sure the rest of the staff knows about it. 
Yeah, I suggest well, parents check up on that because it, it, a lot of times doesn't happen. And if you just, you know, you can, you, uh, there's been times I've even just made copies and distributed them. <laughs> so if, the, mm-hmm. if the case manager didn't get to it yet and it's the first day of school and you need it from that day, here, have you seen this? This is how you're supposed to deal with my kid's behavior. Um, right. You know, if you have questions, go ask the team. But, um, right. you know, and it also, you know, if your kid's in elementary school, you need to think about the art teacher, the music teacher, the gym teacher, the specials that are sort of just one period out of the day, but still that person needs to know how to deal. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And um, yeah. I know a lot of public schools, at least in, in Pennsylvania and probably, you know, all over the country, are really starting to look at that training everybody from yes. the, the custodian to the secretary. Yes. Because Absolutely. if you're in the hallway with a, an escalated student, it's likely mm-hmm. somebody will come in contact with a child who normally doesn't. Right. right. So just knowing what to do in that case or, you know, how to even how to ask the person who is in the middle of the situation for help it if they need help, you need to make a phone call or anything like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I know a lot of times there used to be uh, the school would say, well, they don't want to violate confidentiality, and so therefore they keep this thing very close to the, you know, <laughs> they don't distribute this stuff. But everybody needs to know. It doesn't help the kid to have, you know, 20 different ways of dealing with his behavior during the course of the day. So, you know, for parents, if you can make that clear mm-hmm. that you want that that news spread and do it yourself if you need to. Um, mm-hmm. right. And confidentiality yeah. is huge. Uh, but yeah. as long as there is a direct relationship and that person needs to know about this child and right. um, the IEP and the behaviors, they absolutely have a right to it, including paraprofessionals. Yeah, because, right. yeah, I mean, the beha- the behavior is not is not kept confidential. Everybody's going to make a judgment about that kid's behavior. I would rather them have accurate information about it than draw their own conclusions. So I think confidentiality can sometimes be harmful. Now, I have a quick question that um, <clears throat> we, I don't, I'm kind of branching off here and just kind of backtracking a bit, but for many schools, uh, who don't have um, behavior plans in place and want them? Where do they go, or who do they? Who does a behavior plan, and where are the resources that they can access for this? Right. A lot of times, it's the special education teacher uh, creating the SBA in conjunction with the school psychologist, okay, um, and developing a plan based on that. However, more and more school districts are also um, either hiring on staff or contracting out with their agencies to have a board-certified behavior analyst available to consult, at least on pretty difficult cases. Okay. Previously, I was employed by a school district as a board-certified behavior analyst. So okay. some districts are, are even going that route because they're realizing uh, behaviors are sometimes the reason why IEP teams do not look at including a student um, in the general education classroom where that's not the way it should be. We should be preventing behaviors and keeping the child in the least restrictive environment as much as possible. 
Yeah, I know. Exactly. I don't know if this is maybe this is is changing now, but back when my son was in school, um, availability was a real issue. I know he had a, a crisis one year, and he the the team ordered a, a behavior analysis, and the person came like five months later because they were mm-hmm. so backed up, and there was one person for the entire huge school district. And by that time, the teacher and I had figured something out ourselves, and. It, the next teacher didn't need the behavior analysis because she had a better mm-hmm. grasp of her classroom. So, you know, you need to have, if you could have these people, you know, if, uh, more and able to respond quickly. You know, you don't want to wait. If you see that there's going to be a problem, as you say, you want to prevent it. You don't want it to go on for six months and then say, oh, by the way, you should have done this thing. So mm-hmm. um, I, I hope that's increasing in schools, especially as inclusion is, is gaining ground. Have you seen any? Um, oh, that's okay, but not yeah, probably not everywhere, and not enough. <laughs> right, it's definitely increasing. Um, you know, when I was first certified in 2007, I think there was only 2,500 ECBAs countrywide. Mm-hmm. Um, applied behavior analysis is gaining in popularity as a study at the undergrad mm-hmm. and graduate level. And I think there are more and more people becoming trained in ABA and positive behavior supports and yeah. enhancing our education and becoming a BCBA. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's still I, definitely not enough. Yeah. yeah. I think is there, that's one is of there the, a way to, like, train teachers to do this, maybe at least on the ground as a stopgap, uh, rather than having to wait for somebody to come in? Absolutely. I work with, um, I'm kind of like two people in one because I'm an administrator <laughs> and a BCBA by trade. So uh-huh. I personally, I work with a lot of teachers on, you know, just general basic strategies, including the regular right. ed teachers. Um, mm-hmm. the, the first thing they'll say is kind of like when a child is newly diagnosed with a parent, what can I do to help yeah. this child now? Mm-hmm. So yeah. some of the things like sensory breaks and sensory diets and allowing mm-hmm. the child an opportunity to move. Who cares if he's yeah. standing at the back of the class? As long as he's standing right. at the back of the class and in class, I'm happy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And sometimes it is a, a mind shift. I, I was trained mm-hmm. as a regular ed teacher. I honestly never thought I'd work a day in special ed. And mm-hmm. You, you don't have that background. Um, I know now more and more they are in college prep classes. They are giving um, new service teachers backgrounds in special ed, but definitely not the behaviors and classroom management classes do not touch right. on sometimes the severe behaviors we see in public school and general education classes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I just, just want to quickly interject here. I mean, I just know from experience having to work with behaviors on the fly and not having the training, not having the resources, not having the background as a classroom teacher. And, you know, you really are just doing your very best at that time and trying to, you know, figure out what's going on with the child in that moment. And mm-hmm. it just it would be so helpful if if schools and parents and teachers can really work together to put a plan together for these children because it's difficult when you're in that moment (laughs) and we know as parents when we're dealing with our own children how hard it is to make the right decision and and you don't want to you want to 
decrease the behavior, not increase it. So right. anyway, I just had to throw that in because, man, I've had some <laughs> real experiences <laughs> over the years. <laughs> and also, anyway. this is a question I had coming up, but paraprofessionals are a really important piece of that puzzle. If they could could be trained in some techniques as well, uh, I know quite a lot of paras just go into it with the skills they had as parents, and they expect that to be able to work. And, you know, if it doesn't, they just sort of do it harder. And, you know, they need to be, and that can be a, a tension with the teacher if the teacher has different ways of doing things, or if the student doesn't respond to it. Uh, everybody really needs to be on the same page and have the same skills, and then the para can be enormously useful in you know, implementing some of these things and observing some of these things to, to do behavior mm-hmm. analysis. Uh, but, I, you know, I know back when we were dealing with things with my kids, the, the paras just had no clue uh, and yeah. no idea why you would want to do it that way. And it would have been so helpful if they had been able to, to implement some of these techniques, you know, with the right. teacher in concert. With the inclusive model and uh, the push for inclusion and mm-hmm. educating students in the least restrictive environment, I think paraprofessional roles are changing. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. Previously, I think they were kind of just in the background in the case something would happen, uh, mm-hmm. for some kids at least. And now yeah. they are taking a real hands-on approach to instruction, mm-hmm. to behaviors. Um, I know in Pennsylvania, paraprofessionals have to have 20 hours of training every year, and mm-hmm. I know a lot of districts are focusing on behaviors and IEPs and yeah. inclusion and how to support the student, mm-hmm. the teacher appropriately yeah. in the inclusive environment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's good. That's really important, and I, I love to see... You know, paras get that support and that training because uh, I think a lot of them, you know, can do a great job and do really well with the kids. They just don't have – nobody's ever told them what to do. <laughs> they just get Absolutely. down in there. And, and most parents, they just want to know what to do, and they'll do it. Yeah. But if they yeah. don't know, you can't expect them to do it. Mm-hmm. So No, and that's – you know, there's always some that are resistive, but most of the ones that I've worked with would, would love to know, <laughs> you know. What to do? So that's Absolutely. really good. And sometimes I think with training powers and even teachers, it's sometimes the fear of the unknown. You see a student mm-hmm. with an FBA six pages long and yes. pretty severe behaviors, and yeah, they get scared because they don't know what to do. So giving them that right. toolbox and the training and how to prevent the mm-hmm. behaviors, I always say it's much yes. better to spend two hours preventing behaviors mm-hmm. than it is yes. spending two hours responding to behaviors. Exactly. Mm-hmm. We're all involved. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Now, Terry, I know you were going to ask this question, um, some of the goals for yeah, um, what is, behavior plans. I'm, I'm similar. I mean, I know that there's a behavior plan as a separate entity in an IEP. Um, are there, like, common goals, uh, IEP goals for maladaptive behaviors and social skills that would be included in the IEP as well? There should be. Well, technically and legally, the behavior plan is part of the IEP. Mm-hmm. So it should be updated every year when you have your annual IEP meeting. Um, but most school districts, their computer programs have it as a separate entity, uh, even though mm-hmm. it's really one document. Now, the SBA 
is not part of the IEP, but mm-hmm. the behavior claim is part of the IEP. Right. And the goals in the behavior plan should be progress monitored um, and looked at just like you would look at an academic goal. And a lot right. of times the behavior plans focus on decreasing the maladaptive behaviors, increasing functional communication, and social skills. Mm-hmm. So there's a direct correlation with, you know, some of your severe behaviors and not being able to communicate functionally what you want to get your wants and needs met. Mm-hmm. So as you increase functional social skills and uh, communication, you'll see negative behaviors decrease. Right. And that's a lot of what positive behavior support plan goals look like. Is there a specific behavior program that should be used in the school setting? Um, most school districts don't have a specific behavior plan um, mm-hmm. program. I know a lot of school districts are using prepackaged bullying programs, things like that, but there's not one specifically for severe behavior. There's the basic principles of applied behavior analysis mm-hmm. and um, verbal behavior, which a lot of BCBAs are trained in, um, mm-hmm. and a lot of school districts will, and their contracted support personnel will use the basic principles of ABA and VB because mm-hmm. it is an evidence-based practice. Um, it, it is an evidence-based practice for students of all different types of disabilities, including mm-hmm. students with autism. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So it, it's, it's really important. A lot of school districts won't write a specific um, behavior program into an IEP. There's really not one there, but all the SBI are based on positive behavior supports and ABI. Right, right. And can you give us a quick example of some of those, um, like a specific goal or uh, a social skill that a child could be working towards? Sure. I know with a lot of students who either have communication but they don't know how to functionally communicate it, whether you're talking about um, an autistic student or a student with emotional disturbance who gets so frustrated they can't communicate when they're in a severe behavior episode, um, mm-hmm. we look at using functional communication during times of frustration and basing it off the baseline data where we want to go for the goal to be achieved in a year. Right. Good. Thank you. It's interesting. I am um, certainly, I know that it would help me a lot <laughs> had, I, had I had that information you, when I was teaching. Do you have any Absolutely. thoughts about what what parents can do if they feel that their child needs some, um, you know, a behavior component in the IEP or behavior plan? Um, how can they advocate for that? And if the district tells them, you know, we don't have the personnel for it or we're working on it or we don't do that or, yes, we'll schedule one of those for the beginning of the next school year, what should parents be doing about this? Parents should be talking with their, their case manager, the IEP team, and to really say, hey, we need to look at preventing these behaviors. I know the behaviors are difficult. Um, I see them in the home. I see them in the community. It's not just in school. I want to help my child right. be successful all around. 
Um, yeah. And, you know, there's also, in different cases, wraparound agencies and supports and advocacy groups that parents can get in contact with um, mm-hmm. to help in the home and community as well. Um, you know, decreasing behaviors across the child's whole waking day is really <laughs> the goal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. That's good. I, it's so often the kid gets blamed for the behavior and it gets put on the parent as the parent's problem. And, I mean, oftentimes behavior will go off at school for reasons that the parent doesn't even really see or know, you know, mm-hmm. uh, problems with routine or problems with a, another personality in the classroom or different things. You know, it's impossible to prevent at home something that's coming on going on in the classroom. Absolutely, so, and vice versa. Sometimes if something happens in the home, rushing to get ready for school, yes. the routine's off, and then it gets carried right. over to school and then back to home at the end of the day. Yeah. It's, it's really sometimes a vicious cycle. Yeah, definitely, and communication is helpful in all those cases. Communication, absolutely. And seeking out those resources, um, I'd employ yes. any parent to look at applied behavior analysis analysis yes. and ABA in general just for even basic um, strategies for the home and school. Right. There's a lot of Definitely. good books out there. Well, unfortunately, we have to uh, wrap up today, but this is a great topic and one I know everybody's interested in. Thank you so much for being our guest, and I would like yes, to thank, thank our listeners for tuning in to our program this morning. Uh, and to guest 212 who came into the chat room, never said anything but yo, uh, please join us next Friday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time when we'll talk with Samuel Fry about the upside of having a learning disability and why we should be calling it a learning difference. Uh, in the meantime, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter where Nicole tweets under the name inclusive underscore class, and I am at Mamatude. Kristen, do you have a, are you on Twitter? I am. It's at Dr. Cosmo, BCBA. Okay. And finally, you can download our past podcast for free on Stitcher and iTunes. Goodbye, everyone, and have a great week. Goodbye.